Scripture this morning comes from 2 Mark, verse 1 through 11. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the man on which the par- they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "Son, your sins are forgiven." Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, "Why does this man speak that like that? He's blaspheming." Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, Pick up your bed and go home. Man, you may be seated. <clears throat> In C.S. Lewis's uh, famous book, later turned into a movie, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the third book in the Chronicle of Narnia uh, series, we meet a boy named Eustace. And Eustace is a rotten, spoiled, selfish, mean little boy, and no one can get along with Eustace. He hates everyone, everyone hates him, and he finds himself magically on a ship, the Dawn Treader. And as this ship sails into an island, it pulls into an island, Eustace wanders off of the boat and finds himself in a cave, and he discovers that this cave is filled with treasure, it's filled with gold and Diamonds and rubies, incredible treasure. And he immediately thinks, I'm rich. I've discovered this incredible treasure and I'm going to be rich. He immediately thinks that he can now have his greatest wish, which is to be loved, which is to have relationships. And he thinks immediately, I can, I can pay everybody back that's wronged me. Everyone that's stepped on me, everyone that's laughed at me, everyone that's ridiculed me. I can get my revenge now that I've discovered this great treasure. Eustace falls asleep on top of this pile of treasure, and because he falls asleep with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he wakes up only to realize that he's turned into a dragon. Now in this incredible story and vivid imagery that we see, Eustace is turned into this dragon that's big and terrible and frightening and horrible, and he realizes as this dragon that there's now no way out. He can't go back to the ship because he's a dragon, and dragons don't go on boats, And he realizes the trouble that he's in and that he'll spend his life on this island alone. He's going to be a horrible monster, a hideous dragon his entire life, and he falls into deep despair. Yet one day, while on this island, the great lion Aslan, which if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia books or watched the movies, uh, Aslan is the God figure. He represents God in these parables. Well, Aslan shows up and leads Eustace to a pool of water. He tells Eustace to take off his dragon scales and get into the pool. 
And so Eustace begins to gnaw and claw and scrape at this dragon skin. He realizes that he can actually shed the skin, and he's excited that he can take off this dragon skin, but he's sadly disappointed and devastated when he realizes that as soon as he gets the skin off, there's another layer under it. And so he does it a second time and a third time, but to no different result. He continues to see that every time he takes off a layer of this dragon skin, he's covered with another layer. And then Aslan says this, you're going to have to let me go deeper. And Eustace tells the story later, he says this, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you that because uh, I was pretty near desperate by now. At the very first tear, he made it so deep that I thought he had gone into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and just as I'd thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water, and it smarted like anything I can describe, but only for a moment. And then I saw I'd turned into a boy again. See, for many of us, we hear that, and and though it's a fictional story, it almost brings us to tears because we see the imagery that C.S. Lewis is trying to create. Like Eustace, we have thought that if we could just have a little help, if we could just have a little help from God, then we could save ourselves. We learn that, uh, that Jesus, though, has a completely different idea in mind, that he wants to go deeper. He wants to get at the heart of the issue. He wants to reconfigure the thing that we think that we need most. He wants to get to our heart. And in our text this morning, we find a man that is that kind of desperate. He's so desperate that he and his friends go to drastic measures so that he can meet Jesus. They go to drastic measures because they have a man, they have a friend that they think they know his greatest need. They had a deepest wish that he wanted to be desperately granted the desire to walk. And we find that Jesus, like in our fictional story of Eustace, Jesus wants to take him deeper and show him what he really needed, what his deepest desire actually should be. And all of us have been there. Maybe you're there this morning, that there's something in your life, there's something that you're so desperate for that you literally weep for it, that you daily or maybe even hourly beg God for. And it might just be that it would be unloving of God to grant that wish because he knows that what you actually need is him. And so in our text this morning, we we find an incredibly familiar text. Many of us have probably heard it since we were a child, maybe in VBS or Sunday school. It's one of those that you see on the felt boards and you, you grow up hearing. And so this morning, to hear it maybe with new ears or to see it with new eyes this morning, let's approach it as reporters, investigative reporters. Maybe we're, uh, you know, uh, working for the Capernaum Times or something, and we've, we've heard this event's going on, and so we go and we want to see it, and we want to ask the right questions so that we can get at what's really going on here on this day in Capernaum. And so to approach the text, we'll see in Mark's account this morning of Jesus, we'll ask four questions. I guess they could be points, but really more questions to drive us into the text and see what's being done here in Mark chapter 2. Our first question Why are they bringing their friend to Jesus? Why are they bringing this friend to Jesus? We know, we've been studying the book of Mark, we know that in chapter 1, Jesus demonstrates his authority 
We see that he has authority over the spiritual realm. He has authority over the physical realm. He's healed before. And as he does, his fame grows. Mark chapter 1 shows us that, that he's becoming very popular and he's attracting a following. And then chapter 2, as we'll see today, we see another uh, trend start. As he's become very popular in chapter 1, well, in chapter 2, we'll see that it starts a series of five encounters where he begins to grow great opposition. He has people coming against him, seeking to destroy him. And so this is the first of those type encounters where we see that specifically with the scribes. So like us, readers of Mark, they would have been there that day wanting to know what it is about this man Jesus. What's he doing? They've heard of out of the ordinary things, supernatural things, miracles that Jesus is doing, and that's attracted a crowd. And so this is why a group is gathering here today. They knew Jesus could heal, but on this occasion, they're there. There are doubters there. There are skeptics there. The scribes are there. Eventually, those that would want to kill Jesus are there. The scribes, remember, in this day, they're skeptical. They're wanting to attack Jesus for what they uh, perceive to be wrong teaching from Jesus. Notice then also at a time when there's only standing room. It literally says that they were trying to listen from the streets, trying to fit into the doorways and windows to hear Jesus teach. The scribes in verse 6 are sitting and so you can picture them perched up on their seat of prominence, their place of, of, of authority, skeptical, brewing, maybe even snarling at Jesus as he's teaching, waiting for him to mess up. And so there's a crowd attracted. There's people that are here to listen to this miracle worker. Look at verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So picture this scene this morning, church family. Jesus has finished his first uh, ministry tour surrounding Galilee. He's returned home, and some time it seems has passed. In verse 1, we see that. His home likely here is the home of Simon Peter or possibly even Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house. That'll be more significant for us in a moment. The house is crammed, packed with people. You couldn't even poke your head in the door, the text says. Why is that? What are they there for? What was Jesus doing? Was he doing exorcisms like before, casting out demons or unclean spirits? Was he performing supernatural miracles with incredible signs? No. You see in verse 2, he was preaching the word to them. We've already seen in Mark chapter 1 that he had an authority. He taught as someone uh, different from the scribes, someone with actual authority as the creator. And so he's teaching. And then these men come and these four dudes walk up to the house and they're carrying this fifth friend. He was paralyzed. And they can't get close enough to the house. They can't get close enough to see Jesus, to get this friend of theirs near Jesus. So what do they do? They go up on the roof. Now, in this day, it would have been likely a staircase outside of the house, on the side of, on the, side of the house exterior wall. They would have went up that staircase to a, literally a, a roof that, that would have been easily accessible. Verse 4 says that they literally unroofed the roof in the Greek. 
In that day, that would have been a, a difficult task. It wouldn't have been something that happened quickly or simple. Uh, there would have been large timbers that were laid across these walls with sticks overlapping those timbers, maybe small reeds or thistles uh, overlapping those sticks. After all of that, there would have been a, a layer of mud, uh, likely a, a foot thick. And so by the time you have all of this there, it possibly could have been as deep as, as two feet thick to withstand water and wind that would have beat down on the house. And these men, as they go up onto the roof, they're literally digging through the roof. Now you can picture the scene inside. Inside the house, it's full of people, and they're listening to Jesus, this one with authority teach. There would have been commotion. There would have been a shoveling and pounding, maybe some pickaxing going on. It would have gotten louder the closer they got to breaking through the sound of whatever's going on on the roof. You can imagine as if there was somebody here today trying to come through our roof. You can imagine how people are starting to wonder what in the world is going on here. What is this sound? What's fixing to happen? And, and then the light as it broke through, as they finally made a hole through the roof and mud and dirt and sticks falling directly on those beneath the hole. The hole is enlarged just enough for a man to come through. We can safely assume that there would have been shouts and, you know, what's going on? Questions being exchanged from those inside the house under the falling rubble and those on top of the house lowering a man through the roof, especially if this was Peter's mother-in-law's house, right? I just spent three days with my mother-in-law and I love her dearly and she loves me dearly. That is until I start digging a hole in her roof and then that gets a little more tricky, right? Mom-in-law is not so fond of son-in-law at that moment. They're ripping a hole in this roof, and as soon as they get him down through the roof into the presence of Jesus, there's an incredible twist in our text this morning, and you see that in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. It seems at first that Jesus has completely misunderstood why these men are there. These men obviously believed that their paralyzed friend could be healed. They lower him through the roof. They're that desperate to get him in front of Jesus, this miracle worker, that they tear a hole in someone's roof, and Jesus has misjudged why they're there. Instead of saying, get up and walk, he's talking about sins being forgiven. If this man were from our time, you can imagine, he probably would have come back with something like, um, yeah, thanks, bro, uh, but you, you can tell I've, I've got a little more immediate problem here. I, I can't walk. I'm paralyzed, and... I appreciate all that you're saying about sins and all, but I, I need to walk. I've got, a, I've got another problem here, Jesus. But in fact, Jesus knows something that this man doesn't know, that he has a much bigger problem than his physical condition. By starting with this claim to forgive his sins, he's saying, I understand your problems better than you do. I understand your suffering. I've seen your suffering. But realize that the main problem in anyone's life is never his suffering, it's his sin. Jesus is saying here, Jesus is getting to the root of his problem, the root of our problem, our deeper need. Jesus is saying here this morning that by wanting only your body healed, you're not going deep enough. I've got to go deeper. You've underestimated the depths of your longings. You've underestimated what you think you really need. You think that if you could walk that you would be happy. You think that if you could walk again that you would be set for life, that you would never be depressed, that you would never be unhappy, that you would never complain. And if only you could be healed, that your body could be healed, you would be okay. But give it a few months, and this newfound excitement will wear off. 
This newfound ability, this immediate joy that you feel from being able to walk will fade and you'll find yourself wanting again. Jesus knew his deeper need. Cynthia Email, in, a, in a, uh, an article for The Village Voice, writes about a phenomenon that she's seen among celebrities. She had known several celebrities. She had known many actors and actresses that were struggling to make it in the industry, to make it in Hollywood. And as a result, they were working in restaurants or sweeping floors and struggling to make it. And they would say things like, if only I could make it in the business, I would uh, achieve the fame that I've worked so hard for, I could be happy. And when they got the fame that they had longed for, email said that they became insufferable, unstable, angry, stressed, depressed, and even miserable. And she says this, this is quoting her, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame, and they worked, and they pushed, and morning after morning, they worked for this, but each of them, when they became famous, wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame, that, that, that fame thing that they were going so hard to try to make, they thought that it would make everything okay, make their lives better, actually ends up making their lives miserable. They thought it would provide them personal fulfillment and happiness. Nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned into howling and insufferable disappointment. She was sorry for them. She pitied them. The very thing that they had strove for and strived for their entire life, the very thing that they thought would make them happy, didn't deliver. And then she says this, this shocking statement. I think that when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you the deepest wish you have. Jesus is saying to this man in verse 5, there's no rotten jokes here. No rotten jokes here. I'm not going to give you the thing that you think you need and just heal your body, but I'm going to give you your deepest need, forgiveness. I'm going to forgive your sins. And the same is true for each of us here this morning, friends. The Bible shows us that our real problem at the very core of who we are, that every one of us here this morning are building our lives on something. We're building our lives on something, and that something could be uh, something other than Jesus. And whether it's success in a certain field of work, whether it's having a certain type of family or family relationships, whether it's uh, getting up and walking in the case of this paralytic man, we're saying that if I could have that thing, if I could get that deepest wish or achieve that deepest desire, then everything would be okay. And we've made that thing our Savior, even though we would probably never say that. That's what our hope's in. That's what our trust is in. And as long as we don't have that thing, we're angry, we're unhappy, we're depressed, we feel empty. And yet, when we achieve it, and some of you may have been there, you've achieved that thing you wanted so desperately. And when we've achieved it, we're even more empty, more unhappy, more unsatisfied. Why? Because we've distorted our deepest need. We've thought we needed something, we've put everything into achieving that, and we're trying to fill a place that only Christ can fill as our deepest need, relationship with the creator of the world. <clears throat> would you today find your identity in Christ? Realize your deepest need this morning is for forgiveness. And remember this morning, if we're investigative reporters, we have this question, why did they bring their friend to Jesus? Why did they bring this man before Christ? 
Some of them that day were there to hear his teaching. That's why they were initially a a crowd gathered and uh, people were listening to his teaching. We see that his teaching is different from any other. And so that was enough of a reason to be there, to hear Christ, the Son of God, the Word, proclaim the Word of God. But these men were there in hopes of having their friend's ability to walk restored. That's why they had traveled there this day. Jesus gave him what he really needed, his most fundamental need. Any of our most fundamental needs, sins forgiven. So a bit of application this morning before we move on. In these men, you see guys that are striving, working so hard to bring their friend before Christ because they think he can be forgiven. They're, they're convinced that he could be uh, restored and have his uh, ability to walk given back to him. This morning, friends, we do that. What you believe will bring satisfaction or joy or fulfillment. You will bring others too. Whether that's a sale down at Kohl's or whether that's your favorite sports team, whether that's your favorite book that you've been challenged by or shaped by, or whether it's an exercise program that you found works and you've lost weight, you'll bring others to that. It'll come up in conversations. You'll, You'll tell them about it gladly. We become evangelists for those things that we find our hope in, that we find uh, fulfillment in or find success in. So we take that to our ultimate hope. What are we trusting our lives on? What do you believe will bring ultimate hope and fulfillment? Satisfaction. We can't get around the fact that we are introducing people through our conversations to what impacts us most. So church family, what are you bringing others to? What is it that comes up in conversations that you're trying to convince your neighbors and friends and family that is the greatest joy and satisfaction of your life? Next major question for us this morning, we see why they were wanting to bring their friend to Jesus. wasn't really what they expected as a result. But number two, who is this one named Jesus? I think that's the, the question that faces us as we read through this text. Who is this one named Jesus? Because that's exactly what they were faced with on that day as well. Look at verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting here, are sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Can, who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceived in his, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven here in the text in verse 5, he's doing something unexpected. He's doing something that causes a clash with these religious leaders and infuriates them on this day. And they're not only shocked, they're enraged, they're angry. Upon hearing Jesus' claim to forgive this man's sins, they immediately charge Jesus with blasphemy, which in that day was a, a capital offense. It was punishable by death. See, they realized what was actually going on here. These guys were sharp. They were on it. They immediately realized what Jesus was claiming. Jesus was not just pronouncing his sins forgiven. He was doing that, but he was, in doing that, pronouncing himself to be God. This was a declaration of Jesus' deity. We'll come back to this idea in a moment, but, but know this as we, as we approach this part of the text. By making this statement... These scribes knew immediately what was going on. You see, they're they're professionals when it came to the law of Moses. These guys were professors in the law. They taught it. They knew it like the backside of their hand. And so when Jesus claims that he's able to forgive this man of his sins, these scribes are absolutely correct. Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. 
unless he is the true and living God. So the question that they're left with is the one that we're currently asking. Who is this one claiming to forgive sins? Well, he is God. That's the point. These scribes were absolutely correct. Only God can forgive sins, and that is precisely what Jesus is saying. He'll prove it in a moment when he heals this man and allows him to walk again. He'll ultimately prove it at his resurrection, where for all eternity he is raised and at the right hand of the Father. But on this day, he is saying before them loudly and clearly, I am the God who can forgive sins. Well, then the question, why is it that only God can forgive sins? Now think about this with me this morning. If at our next elders meeting, Wiley and Brother Bobby and Jay are all sitting there in the elders meeting, and for some unknown reason, we'll pick on Wiley since he's not here this morning, he's at work, Wiley just reaches across and punches Jay right in the nose. And that nose starts to bleed and blood's going everywhere and it's a bloody mess. And Brother Bobby looks up and says, Wiley, I forgive you. I forgive you for punching Jay in the nose. It's all right. It's in the past. Let's move on. It's okay. What is Jay thinking? Well, when he gets his nose to stop bleeding and he finally calms down, he looks at Bobby and he says, Bobby, you can't forgive him. He punched me in the nose. It's only for me to be able to forgive him. He didn't wrong you. He wronged me. You can't forgive him. Only I can. Only I can forgive him because only I have been sinned against. Do you see what's being uh, said here in the text? The only person that can say to this man, your sins are forgiven, is the one who's been sinned against, the creator. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. I'm the one that's been sinned against, therefore I can say to him, your sins are forgiven. And so Christ, by forgiving this man, is claiming to be God Almighty, the Lord of the universe. And these religious leaders knew that. They, were, they knew that when Jesus claimed your sins are forgiven, he was saying that he's more than a miracle worker. He's more than just some supernatural healer. He is loudly and boldly claiming to be the God of the universe. And so what does Jesus do? He turns around and asks them two questions. I love how Jesus does this. He turns around and asks them, first, why do you question these things in your heart? Why are you questioning this? Verse 8 says that he perceived their thoughts And then he turns around and asks them this question. He knew what they were thinking. Again, that's evidence of his deity, that he is God. He knows their thoughts. You can imagine how that must have struck them when he turns around and tells them exactly what they're thinking. And then verse 2, or the second question he asks them, he asks them two questions. Why aren't you thinking this? And then number two, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? And this question, which is easier, is a really tricky question. It's one that scholars have debated for many years. And the debate is revolving around this statement and Jesus' question, which is easier? Which is easier? At first, it seems that Jesus is saying anybody can say your sins are forgiven, but only uh, someone who's God or a supernatural miracle worker could have the authority to say, pick up your bed and walk. It seems that Jesus is saying that the implication would be it's a lot harder to heal the lame than to say your sins are forgiven. And the fact that he does in a moment get up and walk proves the former that he can say your sins are forgiven. But the question is trickier than that. The question has more than one answer. Jesus is also saying by saying this, friends, it is going to be infinitely harder, infinitely more difficult to affect the forgiveness of sins than you could ever possibly imagine. What Jesus is saying in this moment is that I'm not just a miracle worker. I am indeed the Savior of the world. 
You see, friends, this morning, as early as Mark chapter, Mark chapter 2, we see a shadow of the cross fall across the path of Christ. And by uttering these words, by claiming this, Jesus knows that it will mean his life. Jesus knows that with these religious leaders, remember, he knows what they're thinking. He knows their hearts. He knows that as he begins to reveal who he is, that he's not just a miracle worker, but that he is indeed God, that they will want to kill him. By saying this, man is not only healed, but that his sins are forgiven. He is taking a decisive and irreversible step down the path toward Calvary. And as early as Mark chapter 2, he is taking a step that will uh, be the initial down payment on our forgiveness here today as well. That he is taking a step towards Calvary where he will offer his life so that people can not only get up and walk from their their mats where they've been uh, paralyzed, but that they can actually have their sins forgiven and be in right relationship with God. So which is easier? So Jesus is God. That's who Jesus is, but Jesus is also the Son of Man. Remember, that's our question we're asking. Who is this man named Jesus? Who is this one named Jesus? He's God, but he's also the Son of Man. You see in verse 10, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. This title will become a favorite. Uh, for Jesus, when referring to himself in the Gospels, it's used some 81 times in the Gospels, this idea of son of man. And in the Old Testament, when it's used, it's, it's used to demonstrate humanity. It's used to demonstrate this is a human being. It's meant to illustrate what is being talked about in this verse and what Jesus is using it, I believe, for here is to demonstrate that he is a human being. And so this contrast is what Jesus is emphasizing. The scribes have just said, and he's, they're thinking in their own hearts, that only God can forgive sins, which is the point. Jesus is God. But Jesus adds to it by showing that he's the Son of Man. And that his authority as the Christ is that he is on earth as a human being, fully man and fully God. This contrast between God and Son of Man is evident and intentional. It's exactly what he was trying to do. At the same time, we understand that the point of this story is not that any human can do this, any son of man can do this, but that the son of man, this particular son of man, this one named Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who is at Capernaum on this day, can forgive sins. So the answer to our question, who is this one named Jesus? He is God, and he is the son of man. He is the one that can forgive sins and heal. Third question. What does this one named Jesus do? What does this one named Jesus do? And we've already talked about this a little bit, but let's make sure that we don't miss and misunderstand the two profound actions of Christ in this text. In verse 5, he forgives sins. Jesus said to him, son, your sins are forgiven. That remind you that this guy is bedridden. He's paralyzed. He went to Jesus so that he could walk, and Jesus forgives his sin. What's going on here? Jesus is coming to this man. This man's coming to Jesus, being brought to Jesus. And he receives more than he expected, but exactly what he needed. There's two questions that kind of come up here that we need to address as we see what's going on in the text. Him saying to him, your sins are forgiven. Number one, was Jesus saving someone, forgiving their sins based on someone else's faith? That's a question that could arise from this text. But the Bible, the rest of Scripture, all of Scripture would prohibit us from believing that. It's very clear in Scripture that, uh, that, that salvation, that forgiveness comes through faith, and that's a gift of God. We don't get into heaven, we don't get forgiveness on somebody else's account, that somebody can't believe for us. 
And so we conclude that this paralytic must have had faith as well. There's two ways we can kind of see this. Number one, in verse 5, he says that uh, when Jesus saw their faith, this man, the fifth man, the paralyzed man, could have been included in that there, their faith. We're not sure. It's not explicitly said. So we're not certain of that. But at the very least, uh, Jesus had the ability to see their hearts. He just did that with the Pharisees or the scribes in verse 8. He knew their hearts. He knew what they were thinking. And so at the very least, Jesus knew this man's belief. He knew this man's faith had been given. As he is the one who gives it. And so his faith as a gift of God is what uh, leads to his being forgiven of his sins. Second question. Did Jesus misunderstand his need for physical healing? I think as you walk through this text, you see that he addresses the thing that's, that's not the obvious thing. He addresses something that, that, uh, that, that seems to be out of the ordinary. The man wants healing. The man is there paralyzed, and Jesus starts talking about forgiveness. And then in verse 11, he says, pick up your bed and go home. And we see that he does both. And oftentimes, the Bible connects physical healing and spiritual healing. The Bible sometimes talks about a physical illness uh, being related to sin, that you reap what you sow, that sometimes it is a result of sin. But then in John 9, we see that blindness, in this case in John 9, is not a result of sin, it, that no one sinned as a result, and this man's uh, blindness is still there. And so sometimes it isn't connected. Either way, Jesus knew both of his needs, and he dealt with his deepest need first, the need for forgiveness. The same is true for us this morning. Whatever needs we come in with this morning, whatever our deepest wishes are, our deepest desires are on this earth, whether it's uh, physical illness or, or cancer or relationships or financial problems, those are serious things. We don't minimize those things. Those are, those are longings and desires that we have in our heart because we live in a fallen world. We, we, we hate sickness. We hate cancer. We hate death. But they're not our deepest need this morning. The deepest need that any of us have, the deepest issue that any of us has is the sin that separates us from our Creator. And Jesus has come to forgive sins. Will you repent of your sins this morning? Trusting that Christ is the one who can forgive them, that He is the one that can restore you. So He forgives sins. The second thing Christ does, He heals the broken. Look at verse 11. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So there's zero doubt. Hear this, church family. There's zero doubt. Whether you were a skeptic in that room that day or whether you went there kind of trusting that Jesus was who he says he was, he's doing some miracles, and that's drawn your attention to him, and so you're curious. There's zero doubt in this room that day that he healed this man of his paralyzed condition and that he forgave his sins. There's no physical therapy that takes place. There's no occupational therapy that's needing. There's no relearning of motor skills. In fact, he, he not only stood up, it says that he picked up his bed and he marched right out of the house. He, he left carrying his own mat that he was hauled in on. The point this morning is that his ability uh, to not be able to walk, his disability turned into an unwavering ability that he's now so able to walk that he's actually able to carry something with him while he's walking. Charles Spurgeon wrote, commenting on this, this man, he says, I think I see him. He sets one foot down to God's glory. He plants the other to the same note. He walks to the glory of God. He carries his bed to the glory of God. He moves his whole body to the glory of God. He speaks, he shouts, he sings, and he leaps to the glory of God. You can imagine this morning, 
As his, this man's uh, ability to walk is restored, the change that's taking place in his own demeanor, in his own face, in his own heart. He's given his ability to walk. So his sins are forgiven, but he's also given uh, his livelihood back. You can imagine as a paralytic, this man, uh, he, he, he was at the mercy of others for his meals, for his every need. Unable to provide for a family, un, unable to, to, to care for his basic necessities of life. And now he's, he's been given the ability to walk. Those things are restored unto him. So what does this one named Jesus do? Our, our third question, he forgives sin and he heals the broken. Would you come to him today? Would you come to him today for the forgiveness of sins and so that he can heal your brokenness? He can do that. He can do that. Our fourth question this morning, I think as we walk through this text, how do we respond to this one named Jesus? How do we respond to this one named Jesus? Look at verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. What a display. What a scene for before this, this wondering crowd, this curious crowd that's gathered here on this day. No one had ever done anything like this. And on this day, as he, does, as he worked these two miracles in this man's life, there was no doubt that this one named Jesus had just healed a paralytic man. They watched him get up and walk out. And yet, despite this miracle, this life-changing display, we see at least three different responses. We see the paralytic man or the once paralytic man, because he's not paralyzed anymore. We see his response. He went home that day. And the text says that he went home carrying his bed. But that wasn't all that he was carrying. That wasn't the only thing different about the way he went home. This, this day when he went home, he went home with a clean heart. He went home with a, a, a no guilt. He went home with no bitterness, no emptiness, no brokenness. He went home whole and filled by this one Christ that had not only forgiven his sins, but had healed his body. So we see his response. He goes home and he's changed. Second response we see is with the crowd. Verse 12, it says this, that they were all amazed and glorified God. And that just makes sense. Think about what they had just witnessed. They had just heard the preaching of this one Jesus as he expounded upon the word, the text says. This one who has the ability to teach like no other. This one who teaches as the creator of life. This one who teaches with real authority. They had seen the undying determination of a group of people to get their friend to Jesus. You can imagine this. This is one of those things you see on social media and you just get caught up watching it. And you're like, oh, you're so moved by it. These friends went to extreme measures to get this man before Jesus. They tore a, roof in some, a hole in somebody's roof. That's incredible determination. They heard Jesus forgive sins. Think what an incredible sight when we see someone come before Christ, confess their sins, and Jesus saves them. We celebrate that. We go down to the creek and we watch a baptism and our hearts are stirred because we've seen someone pass from death to life. That's what they witnessed on this day. They saw Christ forgive someone and someone pass from death to life. And then they saw Jesus confirm his authority by healing this man's physical body. You talk about a revival. That was an incredible scene. And they were astounded. They gave glory to God, the text says. They were glorifying God. And then, they said, then I love that the text says this, that they said, we never saw anything like this. I've been in South Louisiana the last few days. Down there, it would have been something like this. Say, blue drill. Say, we ain't never seen nothing like this before. That's what, this is mind-blowing. This is unheard of. We've never seen anybody do things like this before. But there was a third group that day. The scribes. 
You see, they were skeptics, and they came there. They went there with the intention that day to incriminate Jesus, and they left madder than fire. They went there that day to try to trip Jesus up, find anything that he was saying that could be wrong and be used against him, anything that they perceived to be wrong that could be used against him. You see, the paralytic came in that day without the ability to move freely, paralyzed, and he went home healed, leaping to the glory of God. These men came there that day thinking they were fine, thinking they were free, thinking they had the ability to move, and they went home absolutely paralyzed by the authority of Christ. Their hard hearts were turned away from him. Their calloused and cold hearts were even more hardened by this king. But they'll be back. I told you this is the first of five encounters where we see that they're attempting to, uh, to destroy Christ, to kill Christ. And they'll be back. And they'll soon devise a plan where they can have this one named Jesus murdered. See, their hearts are filled with sin. Their hearts are filled with hatred towards this one Christ. Their hearts are filled with jealousy towards him. This man from this podunk little town has this teaching, and these people are following him. We're scribes. You can sense the pride. He'll be back. And at his tribe trial, they'll charge him with the same offense that they're charging him, him with in this text, blasphemy. That he's blasphemed. Because he said he was God, and we know that no one is God but God alone, Yahweh. And this man says he can forgive sins. He's not God. He said they missed it. It was right before their very eyes, and they missed it. This morning, church, don't miss it. See Christ in this text. See Christ in Mark chapter 2. And here this morning, he is the one with the ability to forgive sins. He is God. The Son of Man that we see in the text, He is the one that can deal with your sin condition today, your deepest need. Will you surrender your life to Him? Which response this morning? Will you surrender your life to Him, confess your sins this morning, and have your greatest problem dealt with today by the blood of Christ? Will you celebrate what He's done in your life, what you see Him doing around you? Will you stand in amazement and in awe of what God is doing? Or will you leave just apathetic, cold, hard, as these scribes did. I pray that you would surrender to this miracle-working king today. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning, and we thank you for Mark's gospel, where we see that Christ is the one who deals with our deepest and greatest need. And so, God, we come before you this morning as beggars, as paralyzed men on mats, God, we think we might know what our deepest needs are. We think we have desires in our our hearts that if we could just have them met, we would be filled and satisfied. But God, you know better. And so God, help us this morning in the text to see that our greatest and deepest need is to be forgiven and to stand before you as a son and daughter. God, as we respond to the text this morning, would you help us to celebrate your glory, stand in awe of how great you are, and surrender to you and follow you. God, thank you that you didn't leave us in our sins. We give you this time and pray that you would work in our hearts as we respond to the word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd stand with us, we're going to respond in singing this morning. And if, if you've never done that, if you've never been to this one, the Christ, and had your sins forgiven, will you call upon his name today? The Bible says that you will confess your sins and believe in your heart that he'll forgive you. Will you do that today? I'll be around after the service if you'd like to talk.
to walk through what it looks like to give your life to this one, the King. But let's respond, church family. If you're here this morning, you know your believer. Worship him for your forgiveness this morning. Let's worship.